Father, grateful uh, for your people, grateful for this time. Um, you are worthy of our attention, of our focus, of our thoughts. And Holy Spirit, we welcome you in this place, and we ask that you would be present, that you would take your truth and convict it upon our hearts, that you would draw us closer to you. If there are those that don't know you, that you would lead them to um, make that step of faith and of trust in you. And so we are wholly relying upon you for this time. That's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So when I was in college, uh, I worked for a boys' shelter, uh, and I spent lots of time there uh, with both the boys and the staff, um, built really close relationships, and a lot of uh, the people around me didn't share my faith. Uh, They didn't have faith in Jesus. And so it led to lots of uh, good conversations. A lot of times I would be asked this question, why do you believe in Christ? Why do you believe in the claims of Christianity? And so I asked you that question. How would you answer that? Maybe you've been asked that by friends or family, but why do you believe the claims of Christ? Do you believe them? Do you believe that God exists, that Jesus is his son, that he's fully man and fully God, that he really died on the cross and rose from the dead? If so, why? If not, what's holding you back from believing those things? Now, we're going to spend some time examining that, and I'm going to be talking and making some appeals, you know, um, because often faith is uh, thought of wrongly, right? Oftentimes people think of faith as, well, here's reason over there. I'm going to turn my back to it, and I'm just going to run blindly into this act and just jump in. But faith is not that. Faith is not running in despite of reasons. It is trust in light of reasons, And so what we're going to see is we're going to look at um, some clues. God has given us clues that together point to his reality. Like, Like a puzzle with each puzzle piece, each of these clues, they fit together to show us a compelling reason why Christianity is what makes sense. Both of our lives and the world that we see, it invites us to see that why we can't live as if God doesn't exist. Even if we say that he doesn't, even when we deny it, we can't live as if he doesn't. So before we do that, uh, I want to um, read a passage of Scripture that I think is super instructive for it. Uh, in 1 Peter 3.15, uh, Peter is writing to Christians. They're in the middle of suffering, right? They're being persecuted. Uh, uh, their government is persecuting them. Their neighbors are persecuting them. Um, and so they're getting a lot of flack because they believe in Jesus. And so in light of their persecution, right? I mean, they've got friends and family. Like, why are you still believing? Why do you believe in Jesus if belief in Jesus just gets you hardship and suffering? And it's in light of that question that Peter writes this in 1 Peter 3.15. He says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Notice, he, he says again, he says, To be always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Now, this defense of Christianity, it's formally called apologetics, right? And apologetics doesn't mean that you're apologizing to people because you believe, right? Apologetics just means that you are giving reasons for why you believe. It's very simply, it's why do you believe what you believe? It is a way that we love God, right? He says that we are to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And so apologetics is just saying, listen, I want to love God with my mind that he has given me. I want to think critically about what I believe and why I believe it. And so this is both something that is positive as well as uh, answering questions, right? So you're just giving, laying forth and saying, hey, I've got this hope inside. I've got this hope that Jesus has come and has saved and rescued me. And so I want to share with others why I have this hope. 
But then it's, it's also answering questions, right? It's, it's not being afraid to engage in conversation. And notice he says there's a way that we do this. this we, we do it with gentleness and respect. That when someone asks us, we don't get defensive, we don't get angry, we don't, you know, attack and lash out. He says we're gentle with them. We say it's okay that people believe different things than us. We're not threatened by their different beliefs. Instead, we're able to ask questions. We're able to treat them with dignity, with respect, and with honor. We're able to engage with them in a loving way. He says this is the way that we're to do this. And so this is what I want to spend some of our time this morning um, doing is, is just giving some positive reasons for why I think that faith in Jesus makes sense. Um, and so if you're a believer here, I hope that this really just encourages your faith. I hope that you see again why you believe in Jesus, um, that it encourages you that our faith is very rational and, and very defensible. Um, if you're here and you're a seeker, I hope this continues to urge you to press into the things of Jesus. Um, so we're going to look at, and we're going to see that each of, we're going to look at some clues, right? Three, three points um, and three appeals, really. A logical appeal, a historical appeal, and then a, an existential appeal. We'll, we'll talk about these. But each of these are just clues, right? Um, and, and all of these arguments, all of these clues, they're probably rationally available. You can find some way to wiggle out of them. But I think that all of these clues, they point beyond themselves. And, and like I said earlier, like a puzzle, each of these clues collectively fit together, and they they provide pretty strong evidence, I think, for um, the reality that God exists, but also, more specifically, that Jesus is who he says that he is. So, let's dive in. First, a logical appeal. All right, I am going to put on my philosophical hat, all right? So, some of you hear philosophy and you run for the door, please. Philosophy is just thinking critically about God and about the things that he has made. And so, we're going to dig into this a little bit, all right? So, we're going to talk about some arguments process with me. All right, so the first logical argument or rational argument uh, for God is called the argument from origin, okay? And it's simply this question, why is there something rather than nothing? Now, often we don't ask that question, right? It's pretty obvious, like, hey, there are people, there's a world, there's a universe, um, but why? Why is there a universe rather than nothingness? You know, current scientific consensus, it tells us that the origin of the universe was instantaneous and sudden, a big bang. So the universe has not always existed. It had a beginning. Now, the late Stephen Hawking, uh, he says, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the big bang. Francis Collins writes in the book, The Language of God, we have this very solid conclusion that the universe had an origin, the big bang, Fifteen billion years ago, the universe began with an unimaginable bright flash of energy from an infinitesimally small point. That implies that before that, there was nothing. I can't imagine how nature, in this case the universe, could have created itself. And the very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it. And it seems to me that it had to be outside of nature. This is the argument from origin. And if we're thinking of it as a logical argument, it goes something like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe has begun to exist. Therefore, the universe, the universe has a cause. All right, we're going to talk about these points briefly, right? Everything that begins to exist has a cause. What does that mean? This means that we're contingent, right? Why are you here? You are here because somebody procreated you, right? You're here because you are breathing air, right? You are very contingent. We are very contingent on many things for our survival. And so is almost everything we see. Right? I mean, the reason that there's air is because we have an atmosphere keeping our air from being sucked into the vacuum of space. I mean, when you think about it and you look around, you realize everything that we see is reliant upon something else. 
Being doesn't just happen. It's, it, there's a cause. Everything that begins to exist relies its existence upon something before it. And so everything is, is contingent. So where, where's all of this come from? Where have all these, these long contingents of causes come from? Now, maybe an illustration will help uh, show this a little bit more. Say that you and I were walking down the street, and all of a sudden, you hear this big bang, right? You hear this, this bang, and you turn to me like, what in the world was that? Like, where did that bang come from? And I turn to you and look, I don't know, it just, it came into being. There is no cause, just the, the bang happened, and that's all there is. You look at me like, you're a little crazy, man. You know, like, bangs don't just happen, right? There's a cause, like someone clapped or someone shot or something happened to cause this all of a sudden bang, right? I mean, it didn't just pop up into existence. We know that, right? I mean, that's intuitive. Every single person knows that. But what is true for the little bang is also true for the big bang, right? I mean, the universe doesn't just create itself. Now, often the common objection against this is, well, what about God? Who created God, right? I mean, how did God begin? Well, you see, the the argument was whatever begins to exist has a cause. God has never begun to exist. He is necessary in his own nature. And so therefore, he is uncaused. To, to be God by very definition is to be an uncaused being, is to be the very start of all causes. And so whatever begins to exist has a cause. Now, the second one is the universe began to exist. Right now, scientific consensus, it changes over the years, but almost all the weight of evidence points to the beginning of a universe. Now, a couple pieces of evidence that show us this is that the universe is expanding. It's evidenced by the Hubble telescope. It's also the redshift of galaxies. We can see that the universe is actually expanding further and further apart, right? What does this imply? Well, it implies that everything, if it's expanding, it was much closer at a point in time, right? So there was a time where everything was much closer together. That It started from a singularity. There was a beginning to it if it's expanding outwardly. Also, the universe is cooling off, right? Early on, the universe was much hotter, um, and its subsequent cooling off has left noticeable marks, or what's called a glow, that can be seen on the electromagnetic spectrum, and so the universe is, is cooling off, once again, evidence that it had a beginning. It started off, and it has expanded and is cooling off. Uh, next, the universe has changed, right? So the universe isn't static. It hasn't been around eternally. If the universe was eternal, we would expect for things to just continue to, to be the same. We would expect to see evidence of this eternal universe, but we don't see that, right? When we look through the telescope, um, we see the light, and light, you know, travels years and years before it gets to us. Right? So whenever we're looking through a telescope, we're seeing the past of whatever we're seeing. And we've seen that it's changed, right? That, that the world, the universe, it, it, it's, it's changed. It isn't static. It has evolved. It is changing. And so that once again, this implies that there was a beginning. There was an origin. There was a start for the universe. Therefore, the universe has a cause, right? The universe has a cause behind it. So, this cause that started everything, it, it, it has to be outside of the universe, right? I mean, the universe can't just create itself. Things don't just create themselves. So we believe that this, this cause had to be outside of the universe. It had to be relying upon nothing else. It also had to be changeless outside of time and matter since it was what created time and matter. It also must be of extreme power. I mean, right, to create a universe, you got to be pretty strong. you got to be pretty powerful to do that. But not only that, it, this argument also suggests that the cause is personal, right? Because the cause is separate from the effect. And so it was a personal act to choose to create. And so what we have is, it seems that we have a cause for the universe that is powerful, self-existent, changeless, 
outside of time and space, and personal making decisions. Now, right, this argument can be rationally avoidable. Well, we don't exactly know exactly how this happened, and so that isn't necessarily the only cause. We just, we haven't caught up yet, right? So you can try to avoid the argument, but I think it's a pretty strong clue to the existence of God and what God can be like. Now, another rational argument, it's called the argument for morality. Uh, You know, and this clue to God's existence and character, um, it comes from the idea that there are objective morals. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, Mere Christianity, if you haven't read it, read it. It's a staple. It's awesome. But he begins his book like that, um, talking about that there are things that are objectively right and objectively wrong, and that it points to the existence of God. Now, I personally believe that this is one of the strongest arguments uh, for the case of Christianity uh, or the existence of God. Now, this argument, it looks like this. If God doesn't exist, nothing is objectively good or evil. There is such a thing as good and evil, therefore God exists. So let's look at that again. If God doesn't exist, nothing is objectively good or evil. Now, what do we mean by objective? Now, have you ever heard that's a fish of a story? right, where the fish starts this big and all of a sudden it's like this, right? Someone's subjective experience just inflates what the reality is. Now, I spearfish a decent amount, and, uh, and that just involves going under the water, hunting for fish, seeing fish, and trying to shoot it. And uh, it's a really interesting thing. When you're under the water, fish actually look 33% bigger. So you shoot a fish, and you're like, I just shot the biggest fish ever. And you bring it up to the surface like, hmm, maybe it's not as big as I thought, right? And what do you do? You know, good thing it's not just, well, as long as you thought it was a big fish, you're safe to take it home, you know? We wouldn't have as many fish in the sea. Instead, there's, right, there's an objective measurement that you use to judge, should I keep this or should I have to throw it back? And that's a tape measure, right? You actually put the fish up against a tape measure and it tells you objectively whether what you thought it was was true or you weigh it. You know, and so we have this objective basis outside of our perception that tells us whether it's true or whether it's right. You know, it's not just, well, you thought it was this weight, I thought it was that weight, you know, and I'm stronger than you, so I'm right. <laughs> right? There's an objective reason that we use and that helps us to figure out if something's true or not. Now, what is true for physical things is also true for moral things, right? The physical realm and the moral realm are saying there are objective realities behind both of them. Now, we know intuitively that this is true. I mean, just have, listen to conversations that you have or that other people are having. All the time, these conversations happen. And listen to some of them. You shouldn't steal my ice. That's my ice, not yours. You can't just take that from me. It doesn't belong to you. You ought to share that slice of pizza because I shared mine with you. Can you believe they just cut in front of me? How dare they do that? Like, we use this language of they ought not to do that. How dare they do that? That was wrong. I mean, we imply with those oughts, they shouldn't have, how dare they, that there is something outside of them that we're appealing to. There is this moral law outside of both of us that they have violated, right? They've broken that moral law that they, we all clearly know, and therefore they're in the wrong. I mean, you don't often have people that, that have violated a moral, you know, imperative. They've stolen something. They say, well, forget your morals. I'll do what I want. I had somebody that stole my bike in college, and uh, I found who it was and kind of confronted them and got my bike back, and, uh, and they started making all the excuses, right? Well, it was there a long time, and I wasn't sure whose it was and all these things, you know, but they didn't say, well, you know what? 
Forget your morals. I'll steal whatever I want to steal. Stealing's not wrong for me. That's my moral value, right? I mean, that doesn't happen. If it does happen, you know, well, maybe somebody's a psychopath and they need a little bit more help. It doesn't invalidate that there are objective morals out there. It just shows that they may be impaired to perceive them. But we use this language of, of ought. And so we know by nature that it is a part of what we experience. It, it is what we do uh, as human beings. But why? Why is it that we talk about morality like this? Why is it that it's so intuitive, it's so a part of, of how we speak and how we live that we can't separate it? You see, if, if there's no God, then there's no moral law outside of ourselves, and our morality is simply preference, right? Our, our morality just turns into herd, you know, herd morality or, or popular opinion, right? It's, it's whatever everybody else says. It just happens to be that you like or prefer generosity and, you know, love and, and forgiveness, whereas these other people, maybe they prefer racism or hatred or selfishness. Why should your preferences oversee, uh, you know, override their preferences? I mean, if, if there is no God, if there is nothing outside of us, why is it what you think is superior to what they think? I mean, it really becomes might is right. And how are we to ever make any kind of moral judgment against the culture? I mean, for example, let's think about World War II. We've got Nazi Germany that now has taken over in the 1940s. They, they take over Germany, and they enforce law that forms systemic racism that now says that if you are weaker, we're going to destroy you because we think that actually survival of the fittest is what's best and that the strong should suppress the weak because it aids the strong in their pursuit and their, and their survival. And so they thwart and destroy the weak. And that's what the whole, I mean, that's what the culture of Germany said. Now, now, where is it that Britain or the U.S. or any others have any kind of moral ground to stand on to say that's wrong? Because that's what their herd population needs. That's what the society of people has voted into law. W- to what do they appeal to say that's wrong? We should go in and stop them if it's just preference, if there's nothing outside. But we know, obviously, we know it's wrong. We know that those things are in and of themselves horrific and acts that should be stopped by all means. And so we know, we know that there are objective morals, that things aren't just preference. Tim Keller, he says this, he says, if there is no God, then there is no way to say one action is moral or another is immoral, but only I like this. And this is this moral skepticism. It's this thought that we often, maybe we don't hear, it's not articulated, but it permeates our culture, this thought that no one should impose their moral views on others because everyone has the right to find truth inside him or herself. But let me ask you, I guarantee you that there are things, if I ask you, what is really wrong in this world and are there actions that you believe should be stopped no matter what? You could think of a lot of things, right? These are, these are actions that are horrendous that no matter who does them or where they do them, what culture they do them in, they are wrong. But why do we believe that? And, and if we believe that, how do we have any ground to enforce that if there's not something outside of us that we can appeal to? So we know, we know intuitively that moral obligation exists, but that obligation can only exist if God exists, right? The, the second is that there is such a thing as good and evil, right? Good and evil are real things. They're not just illusions. They're not just perceptions, right? We just talked about there are things that are in and of themselves horrendous. I mean, rape, genocide, child sexual abuse. I mean, these are things in and of themselves that no matter who, they, who commits them, where they commit them, they are wrong, and they should be fought against with all of our might. 
And there are things that are truly good that we should fight to preserve and we should hold tight to. And to deny these things is to deny a part of what it means for us to be human. And so we know intuitively that there are things that are objectively good and evil. Therefore, if there is such a thing as good and evil, we know that God exists. Now, we can, there are people that try to deny this, say, well, yeah, you know, there are people that will say moral relativism is real. But they deny it with their lives. You cannot truly be a moral relativist through and through. For the moment you say, well, it doesn't really matter. Everybody has their own sense of morality. That's well and good until somebody violates your morality or your rights. All of a sudden, then you start taking, you start taking offense, right? I mean, if somebody comes up and, you know, you accidentally trip them, they come and punch you in the face, you know, and they say, well, that, you know, that's my morality. I get to hit whoever I want. You're going to take offense to that pretty quick. You say, well, I don't care about your morality. That's wrong in and of itself. You can't just do what you please when you please it. And so we know, we know intuitively that there is a God, and we can't live as if there isn't. We can't live as if there's not a God. We can't live as if objective morality doesn't exist. For the moment we deny it, our lives contradict our statement. So these two rational, logical arguments, right, they, they teach us that, yes, it's, it seems rational that there is a God, that he exists, that he has caused everything we see. But this God, though he is personal, he's not indifferent, he has a moral will. He has a, a desire that there would be good and there are certain things that are evil and that are destructive. But you see, where reason takes us, faith continues on. You know, faith and reason, they're not enemies to be fought against, but instead they are friends that go alongside each other. Reason guides us, but faith, it transcends reason. Where reason stops and can no longer go, faith oversees and, and, and continues on that process. Just as in a marriage, right, there's reason. There's, you think through a relationship. You think about that there's solid reasons. I'm with this person. Hopefully there are good reasons you've thought about those friendships or the reasons you're with somebody. But, but that reason can only take you so far. Faith is what leads you to act upon those reasons. It's, it takes you beyond it. And so we see in, in Hebrews 11.6, it says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. Forever would draw near to God, must believe that he exists. But not only that he exists, but that he rewards those that seek him. So we've seen this, this rational, this logical appeal for God and for his existence. The next thing I want to look at is a historical appeal. For what, what about the claim that Jesus actually is God? That he truly rose again from the dead? And so this is going to be the, the argument for the resurrection. Now, how did Christianity go from a few lonely disciples to the largest movement in the history of the world? What happened on that Easter Sunday in that empty tomb? You know that, that Christianity is, in 2015, they estimated there's 3.3 billion people and it started with 12 guys and 11 of them ran away at Jesus' crucifixion. Now, the largest movement in the history of the world that has impacted civilization more than anything else, I think that it deserves our questioning and our asking of how did it happen and why, what caused it. Now, some evidence for, I think, the truth of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. A couple pieces of evidence. First, if you're trying to make up a story, right, which that's one of the, the arguments is that it's a myth. The resurrection of Jesus is a myth, and it evolved over decades and centuries. But listen, when you're making a lie, I mean, think about when, you know, maybe when you're younger, even still, when you're making up a lie to get you out of something or to convince somebody, like, you want to provide the, the, the most robust evidence possible, right? I mean, you really want to, like, stack it in your favor so it looks really, really good. But it's, it's an odd thing, you know? It, it, in the scriptures, 
the first people that saw Jesus resurrected from the dead were women. Now, for us, it's not consequential, right? I mean, we think, okay, well, what's the big deal? But in first century, unfortunately, women were actually not the most, ref- the most uh, solid evidence. They were, not al- be- they were not allowed to give evidence uh, in a-, a court of law. And so it reports that they were the first ones to encounter Jesus. And, I mean, once again, this, the Bible is, is <laughs> once again, elevating the role of women. It's saying the first people that encountered Jesus were, were women. Now, this actually hurt their case, I mean, right in the first century, if you were kind of talking about the resurrection of Jesus and you said, yeah, women were the first people to see him, automatically people would throw doubt upon your claim. They would immediately like, kind of be like, well, we're not really sure how verifiable that is. So why in the world would you make that up? And why would you, if you're making up a lie, if you're making up a story, why would you just add, yeah, women were the per- first people to see him? You wouldn't. That would not be something that you would create if you're making up a legend or you're trying to create a story that's going to convince the masses. That's the exact opposite of what you would do. And so the only reason that that would be in there is because it actually happened. They're actually the first people that saw him, and and they had a commitment to report what was true. Another piece of evidence is Jews that proclaimed that a God was man, or that, that man was a God. So if you read the Old Testament, one of the central things that the Old Testament enforces is that uh, God is teaching his people do not worship idols. I mean, it's literally like millennia of like the Israelites rebelling against God, worshiping false idols, and then God disciplining them. And they say, we're sorry, we repent, and then they fall back again. They worship idols, God disciplines them, they repent. And so for, for centuries, God is teaching them, don't worship anybody but me. I mean, he, I am set apart unto you. And that God is not a man. I mean, if there's anything that was sacred, that was holy, that was to be reinforced in the Jewish mind, it was that a man was not God. But yet you have early, early within Christian history, people worshiping Jesus as God. How did that happen? Right? N.T. Wright in The Resurrection of the Son of God, he talks about how legends start. Legends take time. Whenever you look at how legends have emerged in history, it usually takes several decades, if not centuries, to begin to emerge. And he goes, but the claim that Jesus is God, coming from these Jewish followers, emerged extremely early on. And we have textual criticism that shows us evidence of some of Paul's writings, some of the creeds that he is, is talking about, were emerged early from within the first two or three years after Jesus' death. And so it wasn't like, well, you know, Constantine came on and all of a sudden people started worshiping Jesus as God as this later addition onto Christianity. No, this is a central part of what started Christianity is this claim that that Jesus was God. Now, another evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, there were tons of messiahs that claimed to be God in Jesus' day. There are tons of people that didn't claim to be God, but they claimed to be the messiah. There are tons of false messiahs. And when all of them would die— there would be memorial services at their tombs. I mean, this is very well known. There are tons of different places where they can go and say, hey, here was, you know, Bar-Jesus, he claimed to be the Messiah, but he died, and so all of his followers would go, and they would make a memorial. They would celebrate. They would come back every year, but not Jesus. For some strange reason, his followers never marked his tomb. They never came back and made a memorial service about it. They never visited it. Why? Because he wasn't there. They had no reason to do that, but yet that was a standard practice for that. And for, you know, a following that for the next 100, 150 years grew in droves and drove massive amounts of people to it, for them not to have a memorial service? Why? I mean, it's so strange. Now, another piece is the change in the disciples. 
Once again, if I am writing a myth or a lie, I want, I'm going to look good. I mean, I'm going to say, you know, I'm going to make myself look good, prominent. Um, I'm not going to stick my foot in my mouth. But yet you see in the Gospels that when Jesus is on the cross, all of the disciples, all of the men, you know, 11 out of the 12, deny him. I mean, Peter, who is like one of the chief leaders in the church, I mean, he— he tells Jesus, I'll never deny you. And then like three times he denies Jesus and he runs off and he like starts weeping because of what he's done. Now, not a really prominent thing you want to write if you're like the leader of the church. Look at my faith. I'm so strong. I betray Jesus in his moment of greatest need. Why would you write those things? I mean, why would you portray yourself in such a, such a way? But not only that, not only do they portray themselves like that, but there's this drastic change. These men that had followed Jesus for three years and yet denied him and wouldn't, were afraid of their lives, after the resurrection, after, the, after Jesus' empty tomb, history records that almost all of them went to their deaths in massive, disgusting persecution. Peter, who right denied Jesus, he was crucified upside down, history records, because he says, I'm not worthy to suffer the same way as my Savior. Now, people will die for what they believe to be the truth, but it's not. Right? I mean, there are tons of people that will die for what they believe, but the disciples were the some of the only people that knew 100% for a fact if Jesus was who he said that he was, right? I mean, they, they saw, they knew, and so people don't die for what they know to be a lie. They don't create a myth and say, well, you know, this myth, I'm gonna die for it. I mean, at any moment, they could have said, well, listen, hey, we made this whole thing up. You can just forget the whole crucifixion thing. I'd rather like to live, but instead they don't. They say, you know what's, what's worse than death? You know what's worse than death? Denying the truth of what I know. Denying the resurrection of Jesus, of my Savior. That's worse than death. And so we have this testimony that these disciples who saw Jesus went to, mass, went to their deaths, refused to deny the reality of his resurrection. Paul, Paul, this person persecuted Christianity, ends up renouncing it and and following Christ, writing 13 letters of the Bible, and himself being beheaded by Nero for his faith. He says that there are eyewitnesses. He says there's over 500 people that saw him. And listen, the Bible doesn't have footnotes. Like whenever you read a book or something, you know, a lot of times they'll put footnotes at the bottom so you can check out the references and be like, hey, is this person legit? The Bible didn't like put footnotes, but what it did do is it wrote people's names. So at the end of Mark, you actually have him say, hey, you remember uh, Simon of Cyrene, the guy that, that helped carry Jesus' cross? Yeah, oh, these are his sons. Marcus and Rufus, and and it literally puts their names. Why does Mark do that? He says, go check it out. Go talk to them. They were there. Their dad carried Jesus' cross. Luke, the historian, he he goes through and he examines and he asks people these eyewitness accounts. And so when Paul's making his his claims, he's not just saying, hey, listen, just believe me. He's saying, listen, go, go ask these people. They're here. They saw. They experienced. And so we're believing these firsthand eyewitness accounts and what they say. And their encounters with Christ. But not only that, but the spread of the church. I mean, right, it, it starts with, you know, a ragtag of 12 disciples, and then it spreads, and it takes over to be the largest movement in the history of humanity. And I think all of these, and there's tons more, but we don't have time, so I've got to move on. But these are evidence that show us that the most rational explanation for the beginning of Christianity is the fact that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. Not that the disciples stole the body or all the disciples had a hallucination or that they made this myth up and then went to their desk, you know, protecting this lie that they all collaborated on. None of that makes rational sense whatsoever. The best explanation for the facts given is the resurrection of Jesus. All right, our last appeal. 
an appeal from, or an existential appeal. Now, what in the world does existential mean? It just means an appeal for meaning, for purpose, from desire. It's an appeal that faith in Christ, it's not only rationally and historically tenable, but it's personally fulfilling and life-giving. Christianity is not just rationally, historically defensible or tentative, but it is personally fulfilling and life-giving. C.S. Lewis says this, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. St. Augustine likewise says, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. What Lewis and Augustine are saying is that experientially we know that something is missing. There is a desire and a void that nothing seems to quench or satisfy. Pascal talks about it. He says there is this God-shaped vacuum or hole inside of us that all of us are longing to fill. And no matter what we place inside of it, it always falls short. Whenever we behold a beautiful sunset or a work of art or a a music that just makes us feel like there is more. It's all this clue that points us beyond itself and it says there is more, this feeling, this desire, this longing that you have. There is more. Right, And, and Lewis is making this argument. He says, we feel hunger and there's food that satisfies it. We feel thirst and there's water to quench it. We have a sexual desire, and there is a, a corresponding, you know, a, ability to satisfy that. And he says, so all of us, communally, we experience this deep emptiness, this deep longing and fulfillment that nothing seems to satisfy. He says, this is a clue that points us that we were made for something more, that there is a brokenness inside that we were made to fill with God, that nothing can truly satisfy like he can. And we see this in the story of Solomon. So Ecclesiastes is this kind of uh, story of, of Solomon. Solomon was a, a, the third king in Israel, and he asked God for wisdom, and, and he was basically loaded. I mean, he had as much money as you can ever hope, and he had as much freedom as you could ever want. And so he went to, to test his desires in every realm possible. He went to set out to see, is there any meaning, is there anything that can truly satisfy? And so he went and applied his wealth and applied his time and ability to every category. He said, maybe sexual desire will fulfill me. And so he had as many wives and his prostitutes and concubines as you can imagine. And at the end of all of his sexual experience, he said, it's still lacking, it's still void, it's still as empty. It can't truly satisfy, I still feel that there is something that's more he said, I'm going to apply my ability to creativity. I'm going to create. And so he went and he created forestries. He created gardens. He created buildings. I mean, he, he spent his time and energy, and he created beautiful works of art. And he said, still they lack. They still, the, the, the beauty there, it, it, it still points to something that is even more beautiful that I'm, I'm trying to attain. He says, I'm, I'm going to surround myself with the most interesting people possible. I'm going to throw parties that make your parties look like nothing. And so he, he goes and he slaughters 1,000 cows and he invites 15,000 people and he has the biggest parties that are out there and he parties all night and all day for weeks on end. At the end of it, he says, it's still ultimately, it, it seems empty and it seems boring. And after, after he applies his money and his energy in all these different pursuits, he says, ultimately, it's like chasing after the wind. 
He says, all of these things, they, they promise to finally satisfy. And once you feel like, man, finally I'm going to be satisfied, finally I'm going to be fulfilled, it slips right through your fingers, like trying to catch the wind. And this, this clue, it points us once again to not only the existence of God, but that we were made to commune with him. We were made and created to experience God, to know him, to relate to him. And this is, this is my story. You know, going back to that friend uh, and, that asked me, why is it that you believe, Trevor? Why do you believe in the claims of Jesus? You know, I, I thought about, my, my first initial thought was, you know, I, I'm going to lay out all these arguments for him. You know, I'm going to tell him about why the origin of the universe shows us God's there, the, you know, our objective morality and the historicity of, you know, Jesus, even the prophecy of Scripture, all these things. But, you know, ultimately, my, those encourage my faith. They maybe even remove some boundaries to my faith, but, but they, they didn't cause my faith. They didn't, that evidence, it, it doesn't spark love and commitment and joy it was experiencing the God of the Bible. It was actually reading about Jesus and coming to an experience of him in my life and seeing his beauty and his grace and his love, seeing my own brokenness in light of his holiness and realizing that he presses into me, that because of his death and his resurrection, he doesn't forsake me, he doesn't leave me, but instead he comes to redeem me and make me new. And this is what he invites us to. He says, listen, God is not just an idea to be assented to, to be acknowledged, but instead he is a person to be committed to and to rest our confidence in. And this is ultimately why we believe, and this is why anyone believes, is you believe because you come to experience Jesus, to see your brokenness and your sin, and to come to an understanding of his grace and his love for you personally, that he knows you, that he loves you, that he has purpose and value for you and your life. And he says, I have made you for myself. We, we now, we see through a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Even our, our experiences now are, are, still, are still blunted. We get to experience that, but man, he says, come with me and I will begin to redeem you and renew you and the best is yet to come. The best is always yet to come. And so that is my final appeal, that if you're here and you're a Christian, my hope is that you would continue to lean in and realize that your faith depends upon a personal relationship and encounter with Jesus, and that we continue to rest in him. And maybe if, if you're here and you don't know Christ or you're still curious, Christianity is rationally defensible and rationally and historically, I think, tenable. I think it's very... Um, persuasive, the arguments, but ultimately you're not going to be convinced by arguments. My major in college was, uh, was philosophy and biblical studies, and no matter how many answers I came up to, there are always more questions. Doubt is insidious. It continues to raise up more and more questions, and there's never going to be a final question, that, uh, a final answer that's going to wrap up all of your questions in a nice, neat little bow. And I came finally to realize that what I was so hungering for wasn't this final answer that would make all of my questions disappear, but it was an encounter with a person of truth that could satisfy my deepest longings and doubts because I knew that he knows and that he loves and that he cares. And so if you're seeking, it's okay to question. 
Bring your doubt to him. Bring your questions to him and find that what you're really longing for isn't just an answer, but it is a person who has the answers and is the answer. Pray with me. Father, we are so, so grateful that you know us and that you love us and that you are gracious in our questioning and in our process. You're not afraid of our doubts or our um, thinking and that you invite that, God, and that you create us for yourself. Thank you that we can find our fulfillment in you, Jesus. I, I pray, Lord, that you would continue to encourage us, convince us of your truth and your reality. Um, give us boldness. We love you. It's an we pray. Amen.